2: From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast, dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast, and we have a real treat for you today. The history of the East India Company, as told by the multi-award winning and gloriously entertaining William Dalrymple. William's most recent book, The Anarchy, was long listed for the Bailey Gifford Prize of 2019, shortlisted for the Duke of Wellington Medal for Military History, the Tata Book of the Year, and the Historical Writers' Association Book Award of 2020. It was a finalist for the Cundall Prize for History and won the 2020 Arthur Ross Bronze Medal from the US Council on Foreign Relations. So William really is the right person to speak with about the East India Company. But first, a little background. The East India Company came out of the Tudor period of seafaring, exploring and privateering and grew in a world of European powers flexing their muscles in the East, where the Dutch and the Portuguese in particular first tasted the immense riches of the Indian Ocean's Spice Islands and beyond of China and Japan. The story of the East India Company is a frankly terrifying one of a privately run financial institution that is militarised and operated with political backing by a hugely powerful state. The East India Company first gets a toehold in India with the Mughal Empire in control, wielding an army of a million men, and then acts swiftly when the Mughal Empire collapses, a period known as the Anarchy it's a story of trade and atrocity going hand in hand for more than two centuries it's a story of private maritime power operating alongside a state navy it's a story of international european rivalry as well as warfare between english and later british soldiers and sailors and a host of native indian powers To understand the history of the East India Company, you must also put it into the broader global context of trade to the West. Tea, textiles, saltpeter to Europe and America, and trade to the East, opium to China. By 1803, when its private army had grown to nearly 200,000 men and it had its own navy, the East India Company had swiftly subdued, or directly seized, an entire subcontinent, in less than half a century. We still talk about the British conquering India, but that rather misses the point and overlooks an even more sinister reality than imperial conquest, because it was not the British government that began seizing great chunks of India in the mid-18th century, but a private company, headquartered in a small office in London, a company which had almost no regulation over its activities. To understand what happened in India, you need to think not in terms of imperial state activities, but in terms of business, of a corrupt corporation acting on its own to achieve the military conquest, subjugation and plunder of huge areas of southern Asia. Once you establish that, only then can you bring in the role of the state and its political support for the activities of the East India Company. And if you're interested in the scale of the plunder and want to see some of the treasures of this period, do go and visit Powys Castle in Wales, where a lot of it ended up in the hands of the Clive family, as Robert Clive became the first British governor of the Bengal presidency and amassed an immense fortune in the service of the East India Company. William spoke with me from his farm just outside Delhi. And as always, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Though perhaps there was more listening than talking. William, well, thank you very much for talking to me today. A great pleasure. A great pleasure. Um, So can you set the scene for us? What's happening in England um, at the time that the, uh, the East India Company um, is formed. So we are in
3: the uh, later stage of the reign of Elizabeth I. And for the last 50 years, uh, various merchant bodies um, who used to form themselves up into guilds during the Middle Ages and So, for example, the sort of people that would have formed Suffolk wool guilds that uh, build build the wonderful uh, guild halls in Lavenham and Long Melford and so on. These sort of merchants have begun to congregate under a new umbrella, which is something which is a, a, a remarkable Elizabethan invention called the Joint Stock Company. And the difference between a guild and a joint stock company is that the guild is only for professionals who are part of the trade. So all the Suffolk Wool Merchants can join the Suffolk Wool Merchants Guild. But if you are uh, the mayor of Lavenham, you can't. The difference with uh, a joint stock company is that anyone can invest. So as well as all the people who are actually going to run the business, um, all the merchants who might uh, provide the shipping or the sales or the finance or the sailors or whatever it is uh, to make a voyage to the east. uh, On top of that, anyone who wishes to can chip in some money and get a share of the profits equal to his share of the capital. And it's a small change from a a guild system and related to the guild system, but it makes a catastrophic and magnificent and uh, uh, sort of game-changing difference to the capitalization uh, of these different uh, organizations. And rather than just being um, the capital of a bunch of wool merchants, basically anyone who thinks they can make a fast buck can invest in this. And the whole um wealth of Elizabethan England soon channels itself uh, into uh, the various trading companies that set off to trade around the world. The first is the Muscovy Company, founded in the 1550s. Then there's the Royal Africa Company, the notorious slaving organization, which the monarchy was associated with and uh, which is still being um, quoted uh, as, uh, in various parts of the world, particularly in Jamaica, to prove the complicity of the British monarchy with slaving. Uh, and then there was the East India Company founded. Uh, well, the first meetings were in 1599. Well, uh, the same year that Shakespeare, for example, was writing Hamlet uh, somewhere downstream from the globe. And um, it finally gets its charter on the 1st January 1600. And the voyage leaves <laughs> later that year.
2: And, and so how important were those Tudor seafarers we all know about, people like Drake and Raleigh, those who kind of set the scene for... Well, plundering, I suppose, is the word around the world. That, you know, did they really lay the foundations for this?
3: Plundering is a very important word. It's not an accidental word here, um, because a lot of these uh, adventurers uh, come with a purse to trade with in one hand uh, and a sword to fight with in the other. And the same person can very easily move from being one thing to another. Um, what those sort of plunderers like to call themselves uh, in the period immediately before the East India Company was privateers, which, which basically just means chartered pirates. And in fact, you could actually get a charter uh, from, uh, from the, from the, the state, uh, from the crown, uh, to be a privateer. And you would raid uh, Britain's enemies, notably the Portuguese and uh, Spanish and their treasure ships, sailing back stuffed with gold from the new year, from, not from the new year, from the new world, uh and this is not a hobonade party we're talking about. <laughs> and um uh so Drake around all these people uh, are very much the same pool of London merchants, seafarers, fighters, uh, uh naval hands who might uh, in one moment, you know, be signing up for the Spanish Armada to fight the Spanish and another going off to the Caribbean to loot treasure ships. And in a third moment, taking place, taking part in an East India Company expedition or a Muscovy Company expedition or indeed a Royal Africa Company expedition. I mean, if you look at the um, investments of the big merchants in uh, Tudor and Elizabethan London, one often finds that they have, have, you know, very sensibly, as a modern investor would, they, that they're putting their... Um, eggs in a number of different baskets. So the same people, exactly the same people who found the Levant company go on to found the East India company. Uh, The Mm -hmm. difference is that uh, one is limited to a small group of investors with the Levant company, while the East India company was open to all and therefore got massive capitalization very quickly and able to afford uh, all sorts of extravagant adventures and conquests in due course.
2: Yeah, it's important to emphasise that we're kind of behind the curve with the East, aren't we? You've got the Portuguese and you've got the Dutch who are already out there, and we're, we're kind of scrabbling to catch up. Exactly right. Uh, what immediately provokes
3: the founding of the East India Company is the arrival in London of a bunch of Dutch uh, merchants and sailors who come to try and buy up excess shipping uh, from, from the London docks because they have just come back from a successful voyage uh, to not India but the East Indies, which means uh, what we call Indonesia, um, that archipelago of islands beyond uh, the Indian Ocean. Um, so Java, uh, Sumatra, uh, but particularly a bunch of little islands of which you know we don't really uh, refer talk about except in historical talks. Particularly the island of Run, which was the world center of nutmeg in in, in the sixteenth uh, and seventeenth century, and in due course. Um, the Dutch fight off the English East India Company from the East Indies. And it is the failure of the East India Company to take on the Dutch, both in terms of of market capital, being able to raise money, uh, the size of their ships, the skill of their captains, and the skill of their trading operations, that leads the English to take what they think at the time is the second best option, um, or rather a pair of second best options. One is uh, India. And they then make an expedition to Surat and begin trading with India. And this turns out, of course, to be uh, the biggest sort of um, uh, fluke uh, bingo uh, win of all time in that uh, uh, it, it, Mughal India is just kicking off. Uh, India is quickly going to become the world's biggest center of the textile trade. And because of, they've failed with the East Indies, the East India Company is in there when they need to be. Um, with the Indian textile trade, so it's it's actually a failure, an initial failure of the first conception of the company uh, as a as a, a basically a spice trading operation operating to what we call Indonesia, that leads to it rejigging itself forty years later uh, into something quite different, which was a, a basically a textile trading operation and aiming at India. It's like one of the, you know, it's like if you like a tech startup today, which initially wants to deliver um, uh, Vietnamese meals and instead ends up, um, I don't know, uh, becoming Amazon and delivering uh, books to everybody. You know, it's, it, it, it's a shift of gears, which ends up making their fortune.
2: Is it a decision to kind of leave the Dutch to their own um, their own wealth? To leave the Spice Islands to the Dutch, they can do what they want, and then the British will will, will take on India.
3: Not at all. It's it's a defeat. Uh, there is a there is a war or a series of battles, some naval, some on land. Uh, there is a massacre, the Amboina massacre, uh, and uh, the East In- uh, East English East India Company loses. Uh, they basically get defeated, and part of this uh, uh, deal. Uh, at the defeat, with the division whereby the, the English left basically to get on with trading with India, while the Dutch take the, what is then considered to be the main prize of the island of Run. Uh, as a compensation, the Dutch hand over to the English a tiny, muddy island in the Hudson River called Manhattan. Uh, and yeah. that's how the Brits get their hands of Manhattan. Uh, and that's literally, that's a kind of, you know, uh, 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 a little sort of party bag to go home with uh, uh, at the end of the... Uh, at the end of this war, it's not even, you know, in the main field of contention, but obviously has had a, a extraordinary effect on, on world history ever since.
2: Um, and the Indians, uh, we've got um, textiles, chintzes, um, but also saltpeter. That's an important uh, trading, uh, tra- trading. There are a uh, whole lot commodity. of
3: things that are traded in India. There are spices. So, uh, you know, the, uh, Kerala uh, grows the same sort of pepper that you might buy in Batavia, which is now modern Jakarta. Uh, and there is cinnamon, uh, which is, uh, turns out, in fact, to be just as good as Indonesian cinnamon. Um, there is indeed saltpeter, which you use for gunpowder, uh, a lot of that in Bihar. Uh, but it very rapidly becomes clear that the textile trade is the big money spinner. Um, and the Indians in the uh, early 18th century rise to become the world's leading economic power on the back of it. There are one million looms in Bengal alone, and they make everything from, you know, fancy silk and fancy embroideries and chintzes, as you mentioned, through to very simple, high quality cotton cloth, uh, piece cloth, as they call it. And um, that is exported in vast quantities all around the world by the English, partly because the Mughals really don't have big international shipping facilities. The Mughals, in origin, are Central Asian nomads. Uh, And although they now expanded to take over the whole of India and and with that have inherited a whole variety of naval traditions up and down the uh, Indian coasts and and the memories of very grand trading operations, both uh, on the West Coast to East Africa and uh, uh, Egypt, uh, an ancient trade which, for example, was far more important during the Roman period than uh, the the much-vaunted Silk Road over land. Um, If you compare the number of Roman coins which have ended up in South India from the 1st and 2nd century uh, uh, to the number of uh, Roman coins in China that have ever been found, there is no comparison. In China, there are under 100. In India, there are around, I can't remember, two or 300,000. So there is massive old trade between um, uh, Suez, the Persian Gulf, and... um, uh, and and Kerala Gujarat uh, and Goa uh, on the uh, on the west coast on the east there is a separate trade looking eastwards uh, first to what the Indians used to call savannah Bumi the lands of gold by which they meant um, Java Sumatra uh, the coast of Cambodia the coast of Vietnam and then beyond that obviously China uh, and and um, in the From about the 5th to the 11th century, that becomes a massive operation for India, uh, which is why you find Angkor Wat, a Hindu temple in Cambodia, why you find Buddhism uh, all over Burma and Sri Lanka and, uh, uh, and why you find that Sanskrit is a language which is spoken in all these places because India has gone trading there and brought a lot of cultural influence and religious influence with it. Um, the East India Company blow their way into this market. The, the Portuguese were the first to arrive with cannon. It was always, I should have to say, I mean, sometimes you read Indian nationalist historians who try and paint a picture of the ocean as this great sort of Eden uh, where happy happy traders traded happily uh, until the Europeans turn up. Uh, it's certainly true that the Europeans use cannon more readily and are more violent, uh, but they're only increasing what is already you know, an armed trade. You have reference, for example, to... Indian merchant guilds having uh, fortified settlements in what's now Malaysia and Thailand and also armed merchant guilds who travel quite understandably with with fighting men to protect them, which is exactly what the Mm. India Company did initially. So there is a difference in scale and violence, but there's not a difference in type, if you see what I mean. You know, what what the um, Indians are doing in the 11th century, the Portuguese, the Dutch, then the British are doing in the 18th and 19th century. They're just more ruthless and, in a sense, more successful.
2: So these things become... makes you deep. wonder whether, whether, whether the English actually had a, had a perception of history, like they knew what they were getting themselves into.
3: No, I think, you know, trade in the Middle Ages was always a, a risky and violent thing. There was always a greater risk, obviously, of, of, uh, of shipwreck, and, uh, and you're much more at the mercy of the elements uh, at that period. But equally, there are, there are huge fortunes to be made uh, then as now from um, entrepreneurial trade. And uh, the English know exactly what they're getting into because they've watched the Portuguese and the, uh, and the Spanish get very rich on this mixture of trade, cl- uh, early, early colonialism uh, and piracy. Uh, and uh, the first East India Company vessel is an ex-privateering uh, ship. It was originally called the, uh, uh, the Scourge of Malice. Uh, and the East India Company thinks this might give the wrong impression, so they rename it the Red Dragon, as if it's a nice sort of country pub sitting in a Welsh lane or something. Um, (laughs) And they incidentally reject another boat that's sitting there waiting to be sailed called the Mayflower, uh, as they think it's a creaky old hulk. Um, (laughs) So, yes, so the the East India Company goes under no illusions. It has an armed trade. Its initial uh, charter uh, gives it the right for conquest and war uh, and, and colonial operations. And a lot of the early... English colonial operations do take place under the umbrella not of the state but of these early trading companies and that's true for example of the Virginia Company or the Royal Africa Company as much or the Musk not buffalo Company but the uh, uh, the uh, East India Company follows very much on the on the um the same sort of grounds as the, as the Virginia Company which is going with with arms to settle what they regard as uh, underused land um. And a lot of the early settlements, uh, such as Roanoke, are attacked by Native Americans and, and battles take place. So, yes, so the company, um, it starts off with a few expeditions to um, well, sorry, the, the company when it starts off looking towards India, starts off with some expeditions to Surat, which is the big Mughal port, um, mainly used by the Mughals for Hajj operations, taking uh, grand ladies and retired prime ministers and so on uh, off to the Hajj. Uh, which is often a useful place of exile for someone who's who's fallen on political hard times. Rather than killing them, you send them off for a, a voyage you rather hope they might not come back from, uh, off to <laughs> Arabia. And um, the English arrive there. They make the overland journey to the Mughal court, which is usually at Agra, but is often traveling around. Uh, and they make a number of uh, of very unequal treaties because the Mughals don't see any particular reason that they want to travel uh, to, to trade with these sort of semi-educated barbarians, as the Emperor Akbar calls them. Um, and it's only gradually through happenstance that, that two things happen. One is that the English investment in the textiles, particularly on the East Coast, pays massive dividends because that expands into the biggest industry of the 18th century. The Indian textile trade with its million looms, particularly out of Bengal, becomes massive. But the other happen chance, which proves to be crucial for the fortunes of the English East India Company, is the breakup of the Mughal Empire, which initially the the, the East India Company has no part in. Uh, It starts with an an internal civil war, the Marathas from above Bombay, the highlands begin taking over a lot of central India. The Sikhs from the Punjab raid down on the environs of Delhi, various Jat rulers uh, make life difficult for the Mughals near Agra. Then out of the blue, the Persians turn up and a guy called Nadir Shah, he uh, invades in 1739, uh, and then and then, and after six weeks returns with the Kohinoor, the peacock throne, and all the goodies uh, from Mogul Delhi. Eight thousand wagons of jewels, and it's like you just well two things happen. First of all, it's like you I know you throw a massive uh, uh, cart of water at the at the uh, main furnace, stoking the Mughal Empire. It goes out. There's nothing, no money to pay the uh, bureaucracy. There's no money to pay the soldiers. So the whole thing just kind of grinds to a halt. And what happens after that is like throwing, I suppose, an enormous Baroque mirror out of a second floor window.
1: Uh, (laughs) The whole
3: thing just shatters into a million pieces. So you get hundreds of little city states like, you know, the Rajput states, Jodhpur, Jaipur, Udepur, all break off and become independent. And the Zam of Hyderabad has a big uh, sort of self-run chunk of the Mughal Empire in the south. The Marathas take over most of central India. Uh, and then on the coast, you get these little uh, enclaves founded by the French East India Company in, around Pondicherry and then the English East India Company initially around Madras and then crucially in Bengal, the richest province of them all. And mm-hmm. that's where you get a gear change in the
2: 1750s with Robert Clive. That's when it all begins to change. So up to that point I mean the the, the moguls have a, have a huge army don't they the, the 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 english are kind of a bit bit more sensitive about causing trouble in the early years of the east india the company then that it's into this vacuum that, that they kind of flex their muscles is that right
3: which which doesn't mean they don't try it on earlier during the reign of aurangzeb when the when the moguls have a million men under arm A complete idiot called Sir Joshua Childs sends off a fleet to Bombay. And after kind of very small initial successes, as soon as the Mughals notice this kind of gnat uh, nipping at their knees, they swat it very effectively. And all the English East India Company uh, head honchos end up in chains in Agra or in Bengal uh, and have to be sort of bailed out. Um, And they are forgiven partly because, you know, they're considered to be of such little consequence and such little threat. And it's only really when two things happen. One is the Mughal Empire breaks up uh, from the 1740s onwards. And secondly, new experiments in naval and military and, um, and, and land warfare arrive in the East, particularly the new methods of fighting developed by Frederick the Great of Prussia. Frederick the Great at the War of Austrian Succession has, has mastered this new type of infantry warfare using file firing. That's, you know you see it in films like The Last of the Mohicans when one load of, of guys is on their knees firing and then they stand back and the other guys have been loading behind them, take their place and they fire off terrific volleys. That type of warfare supported by horse artillery and 18th century advances in ballistics and cannons lead to a new type of warfare, which can um, frankly you know, carve up any Mughal army in minutes. And you see this for the first time with the French importing this uh, when about sort of 300 French-trained sepoys fire off enough cannon to destroy an entire Mughal army sent by the Nawab of the Carnatic. And from the 1740s, there is this period of about 40 years till the 1780s when uh, the Indian courts begin to catch up uh, with captured weaponry and with uh, using um, uh, French and English mercenaries to train their people and, and Irish mercenaries. Um, for 40 years, the English and the French can really defeat anyone they like uh, on any battlefield in India. And in that time, Clive, initially hired by a bunch of bankers, uh, Indian bankers in Bengal, see off Siraj of Dowlet, who's the Nawab of Bengal, in the famous Battle of Plassey. Not really a battle at all because it, uh, the, the bankers had paid off both sides. The Nawab's yeah. army was in their pay, as was Robert Clive. Uh, and uh, after a, few, a little bit of skirmishing and a couple of rainstorms, uh, which the uh, uh, Indian side forget to cover their powder, um, the the the, uh, the the Mughal army flees, and Clive wins the day. He walks in a week later to Mushidabad Treasury, and just fills his pockets with jewels, and sends the remainder back to Calcutta in about forty boats. And when he's called before the Parliament to ask how he thought that as an employee it was a uh, of of the crown at this stage who had initially been sent off to see the French out of the battle which was about to break out, and instead he's using his armaments on the Moguls and just helped himself to their treasury. When he's asked what the heck he's up to, he says, "My lords, I was astonished at my own moderation," um, and he <laughs> and, and in that sort of uh, terrific sort of act of bravado, um, he. He um, makes himself the biggest self-made man in Europe. Sorry, yes, biggest self-made man in Europe. But the initial commission to fight that battle had been from a bunch of Indian bankers. And this is the crucial fact. One must never underestimate in any sense the uh, sheer plundering, looting, venal nature of, of this East India Company intrusion into India. But equally... Um, one must also recognize that it was in part supported by Indian bankers who saw the East India Company as their natural ally. Now, others, that may seem to us, because, you know, a lot of the Indian bankers are Hindus or Jains, they're vegetarian. Uh, they've got nothing in common with a swaggering um, bulldog like uh, Robert Clive. And yet uh, they would argue that, you know, neither do they have much in common with a mogul Nawab like ud-Daulah, And certainly the Jagat Sets, who are the big bankers of the world, the name means, who, who run the, uh, the banks of, uh, of Bengal and who are, the, I suppose, the Indian Marwari equivalent of the Rothschilds in Europe, they pay Clive to fight the battle of Plassey and their successors and their rivals continue to pay the East India Company throughout the 18th century and lend them money because they know that the East India Company, while it may loot and plunder and do a million terrible things, it will repay their loans in full, on time, with interest, without argument and will honour contracts. And they also know that um, there is a great deal of money to be made from trade with these people. Uh, And they also know that the Indian, um, East India Company headquarters in Bengal is a bit like Singapore uh, or Dubai today. If you are a rich banker from Rajasthan uh, who is used to being taxed at sort of 40% in Jodhpur or in Lucknow or in Delhi, uh, it's very nice to go to Calcutta where there are no taxes at all. Um, and you uh, are in a tax-free zone where you can just get on and make your fortunes, and many of them do, which is why all these Marwaris from Mawar, which is Jodhpur state in Rajasthan, end up crossing India to set up bases in Calcutta. And it's these guys who lend the money to the East India Company to buy Indian mercenary troops. And so this is the biggest surprise and the biggest fiddle, in a sense, of the whole operation. Uh, It's not white British guys on horseback defeating Indian armies and using their own money to do so. It is Indian armies fought with the best uh, uh, soldiers that can be hired in eastern India at the time and are paid top dollar. And they're paid with money often borrowed from the Indian banking families. Um, And initially, there's very few Englishmen around Uh, the a century into the East India Company operations, there's only 35 employees at the head office in Leadenhall Street. Uh, at mm-hmm. the time of the Battle of Plassey, there are less than 250 white East India Company clerks in Calcutta. Uh, actually, no, I think there's less than 250 East India Company clerks in India, uh, most yeah. of whom are in Calcutta, a few of whom are in Bombay and Madras. It's a very skeleton staff. and And so... Well, the two things I emphasize in this book, I suppose, is, is one, that these guys are incredibly brutal and incredibly ruthless and do terrible things, which is something that uh, our history books in Britain are rather slow to point out, if they point out any of it at all. But also that they are doing it in collaboration with Indian financiers who see them, who see them as a way to make lots of money,
2: frankly. Uh, it's that simple. Yeah. They see it as a, a, as, a, as a good investment. And they've got the infrastructure there, and I'm very interested in in, in uh, the dockyard of Bombay in particular, where they've got uh, this wonderful rope walk. They've got access to the forests and the beautiful teak, which allows them to make wonderful woods. And sea power is important part of this, isn't it? Even though um, the you know the Bombay Marine is not as large as the Royal Navy by any stretch, but they can they can build and they can control shipping.
3: Correct, and and the East India Company before it even has a, a head office, has a dockyard at Deptford. And so for uh, the very beginning of the East India Company operations, they're uh, they're operating out of the house of their governor. Uh, you know, he's got an upstairs attic where, where this this operation is happening in his own house, but they own a dockyard. So yes, uh, uh, they, the, the, the East India Company naval operations are absolutely crucial to them. And in due course, the East India Company clippers which are extremely fast and which are well-armed and swift and can outrun their competitors but also outgun them, uh, are the kind of Boeing 707 of their day. And they're manufactured in vast numbers in London, uh, in Deptford, uh, and Blackwall. There's a, there's a whole East India Company uh, shipbuilding operation in Blackwall um, where you see there are pictures of it by the Daniels on, on their return from India. They're hired by the company having done all those nice romantic pictures of temples in the jungle. They're hired to uh, do panoramas, these India Company operations in London and uh, a picture that look as if it's uh, painted from what would would in the future be the top of the tower at Canary Wharf, uh, which is presumably done either by a hot air balloon or just from the imagination of, of the Daniels looking from the ground, um, looks down on that curve of the Thames uh, with Greenwich on the far side. Uh, and sees these enormous East India Company shipbuilding operations, with these ships being manufactured in their twenties and thirties at a time, uh, and pouring out at a rate rather like the Venetian arsenal in the Middle Ages, of uh, uh, and outrunning all their competitors. And at one point, I think there's—I mean—they are the biggest employer in Britain, and those a lot of those employees are naval hands: so people making sails, people making ships, people fitting out the cannon. Um, as well as warehousemen
2: and clerks, the it's of inevitable rise to strength of the East India Company. That, that that they are challenged at sea as well. I mean, there, there are also some fairly major hiccups along the way, with the fall of Calcutta being one. Um, but uh, what about their sort of the challenge that was posed at sea? So the the the, the as
3: one should recognize that the East India Company history goes on for 250 years. It's founded in 1600 and it's uh, wound down and nationalized in 1858. And within that, there are many, many different versions of the East India Company. Uh, The first, as I said, is a very small operation dwarfed by the Dutch aimed at the uh, spice trade in Indonesia. That's got a few borrowed ships and a few bought ships. Um, and they are outgunned and out-captained by the VOC shipping, by the, by the Dutch. And the Dutch win that round. By the uh, 1700s, though, um, the company seems to have got to, onto a much more confident footing, both at sea and on land. Uh, and that is accompanied by the rise of the Royal Navy. And the East India Company has a very clever and ambiguous relationship with the, with the crown, uh, initially, it is just a company. Uh, it is chartered from the crown, but it's entirely on its own. And it is almost a kind of libertarian in its uh, uh, ability to uh, you know, run its own world uh, in the East, its own empire. And it, and it very strongly resents any interference by the crown. However, as soon as the French begin to threaten its shipping, for example, they are very quick to call in the Royal Navy to help. And this is what Clive's operation is. <laughs> Uh, and so in the 1756, there's a, um, an intelligence report, which is now in Delhi, uh, whereby somebody sees a whole lot of French ships uh, loading up at Port Lorient, uh, the, the French naval base. And it's assumed, wrongly as it turns out, to be a French squadron heading to India. And uh, so the Royal Navy is approached and, and um, Clive is sent out uh by the navy initially to uh, uh he's given a sort of a sort of um half company half marine command uh and he arrives in madras to find that there is no french flotilla the flotilla that they had seen loading is in fact heading off to the, the beginnings of the seven year war in america uh where you know all that sort of last of the mohican stuff of uh, uh, Mahi- uh mohawks uh, in war canoes crossing lake uh Huron and, and, and all that sort of stuff and Daniel Day-Lewis leaping over chasms with ladies in white taffeta following hard, hard. All that sort of stuff is actually where the boats have been heading and Clive arrives and feels rather silly initially because he arrives in Madras and says where are the French and, and, and the people in Madras say what French? Uh, but then virtually a week or two later the news comes that Calcutta has fallen to and Downer and Clive adapts instantly and says that's where we're off to and off they go and they first of all retake Calcutta and then they're bribed by the Jugget sets the, the bankers to go and take out uh, Siraj and Dowla finally, and that is the moment when suddenly the East India Company finds itself the biggest power in Bengal. It seized the richest province in the world. It's like seizing Silicon Valley today. Uh, you you've you through a series of accidents you've ended up having to uh, attack the uh, the King of California if you like, and and you find that Google, Facebook, and um, Tesla has fallen into your hands That's the 18th yeah. century equivalent And and Clive you know, is, suddenly finds He runs all the biggest uh, Industrial cities in the world uh, The Bay Area yeah. of its day And that's where it all begins And then they just continue on a roll Because they've seen that uh, these small numbers Of uh, English trained Armed sepoys Can cut through these cavalry armies And over the next 10 years they take the whole of the Ganges Basin And over the remaining 40 They take the rest of India
0: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: And the French don't completely disappear. It's quite interesting the kind of the, the level of incompetence that they demonstrate, because they still have imperial ambition in India, but their nearest naval base is in Mauritius, which is two, two and a half thousand miles away. <laughs> Correct, the Île de Bourbon, uh,
3: as it is then, and um, and this is a factor why um, the French failed. Uh, you mentioned earlier the Bombay Harbour. The point about Bombay is it's the it's the best deep water uh, port in the whole uh, of the uh, South Asia. Uh, there is no um, harbour comparable to Bombay. Um, indeed, in the whole of the the uh, East Coast, there is no harbour, which is why everyone who arrives in Madras has to sort of decant into a little rowing boat and then often end up sort of rolled out in the surf onto the beach. And you see these pictures of these 18th century cartoons of ladies and crinolines sort of being tipped out of dinghies. Uh, but Bombay has not only the best harbour, but also the best dry dock. So all these ships that get damaged in either storms or conflicts can be quickly hauled up and mended uh, in the Bombay dockyards. And... The French have got no equivalent to that. Pondicherry uh, and uh, Chandanaga, which are the two French bases, neither have uh, have a, har- a, a good harbour or a dry dock. The other thing which does the French in is is Versailles. Uh, the French East India Company is controlled by the government. And so you get a bunch of sort of dim aristocrats coming out, uh, including um, Laclo, who is the um, um, the author of uh, La Liaison Dangereuse. He, go- he was going to be appointed. Um, uh, governor of Pondicherry, but he got arrested at the port and said never made it. But for which we might have had one of the great sort of sexy French novels of the eighteenth century, written uh, with lots of Indian uh, ladies rather than <laughs> countesses and chateaus on the Loire. Um, but yes, yeah, so the French, the French have a have a, have an under-navied, under, uh, uh, undershipped, underfunded royal uh, uh, company, which simply doesn't match the kind of ruthless mercantile. Naval entrepreneurship of the 18th century English East India Company. And despite the talents of Dupleix, who's their spectacular leader, who nearly gets rid of the East India Company until Clive first turns up um, and takes Madras uh, at one point. Uh, but despite that, ultimately they're defeated. Um, two crucial figures here are the brothers, uh, Lord de Lauriston, uh, who are the uh, son of the um, Lord de Lauriston, a Scot who fled a duel in Edinburgh and ended up being the um, the, the head of the Bank of France. Uh, and he helps found uh, the uh, the French uh, uh, Compagnie de Zand. Uh, and jean Lord de Lauriston and his two sons are crucial figures in the French East India Company, even despite their genius and despite Dupley. Um, in the end, it's an English win. And um, indeed, such is the uh, colea um, money-making capacity for the uh, East India Company, that uh, it's one of the principal reasons that the Scots uh, are interested in the union with England, why Great Britain exists at all, is that the Scots wanted into uh, the, the money-making capacity that India offered. And many families, in, aristocratic families in Scotland, including uh, my own relations, um push through the union, often against very strong nationalistic opposition, so that they can get their hands on the East India Company money pot. And from that point, Scots dominate the East India Company um, in far greater proportion to their numbers than the English. And and that happens all the more so the further you go inland. land. Um, And so it's often Scots who take, you know, remote postings in Delhi or Lucknow, where there's only a few of them around while the english tend to stay you know around calcutta or bombay where there are cricket clubs and <laughs> where they can feel more <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: i i love the fact that the, the americans are interested in what's going on here as well because there's a certain amount of uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend and there's a there's a pennsylvania privateer in the war of american independence called the hider alley which i thought was brilliant it's <laughs> good
3: uh, i mean yes uh, in, in a whole variety of ways this is very important because one of the things that the company does uh, its first fortune, as I said, was made in the textile trade. Its second fortune was made by conquering India and realizing that rather than having to cut out gold from London to buy things in India, you just tax the Indians very highly and then use the profits on their tax to buy the goods and then send the send them for. So you don't even have to send out an investment, as, it, as, as the, the money used to be called. There used to be these treasure ships that were going out to India in order to buy, you know, bolts of cotton and 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 silk and 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 all the stuff that the english wanted to sell in in europe uh, from the 1750s they just use indian land tax um to raise the money and and they don't have to uh, invest anything at all so it's a win win but the third great money spinner is when in the from about the 1780s onwards they realized that they can grow opium in vast quantities in Bihar and in Bengal, and ship it to China illegally, sell it there for vast profit, and then buy tea uh, at a premium uh, from the people they've sold the opium to. And so you get the East India Company transforming in the 1780s. It's already made one transformation from a, a spice company to a textile company. It then transforms again from a textile company to a colonial power. And uh, its fourth transformation is into the biggest narco operation in history. Uh, It makes the Medellin cartel look like uh, child play. Um, And so from the 1780s, you have these big opium operations. And what do they buy in China? They buy tea. Where do they sell it? They sell it in India. They sell it in Europe. And, of course, they sell it in America. And it's East India Company Tea that ends up in Boston Harbor at the beginning of the American Revolution. And...
2: It, I just oh, come in there. I think one of my one of my favourite um, <laughs> historical artefacts I've ever come across is a little bottle. It's in the collections of the Massachusetts Historical Society. And it is tea harvested from the shoreline the morning after the Brilliant. Boston Tea Party. <laughs> is, that, Brilliant. Is, is that in
3: Salem now? Where is that? Where can we see uh, that?
2: The Mass- Massachusetts Historical Society. So uh, Boston. Hey, Boston. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and that is uh,
3: my next trip to Harvard. I will definitely go and do it. A a little scour around there's also a lot of stuff in in the salem maritime museum um a little bit to yes. the north where there's a lot of these early city company prints and pictures of these clippers and so on um as well as yeah. a lot of stuff that they have just got brought back to america from boston there was a huge trade from that period in selling new england ice to calcutta in summer so they'd set off from new england with us with a store with a, with a uh uh a shipload of ice, which they would then put into ice houses in Calcutta on arrival. And this was in the days before proper refrigeration. This was uh, a major money spinner for America. But anyway, we're going off the subject of the revolution. And in India, following the Battle of Plassey, the East India Company does what, you know, all those big sort of uh, hedge fund managers and merchant bankers were doing in 80s England, they were buying companies, asset stripping them, and then selling them on. And the the, the company does this to Bengal on a massive scale, so much so that it kind of, you know, asset strips the entire continent. And the Bengal weavers, who had been this incredibly prosperous group of people, are are, are sort of brought down to the level of of paupers um, within a few years of Plassey. And Plassey is 1756. Buxar, the next big battle, is 1765. 1770, only five years after Buxar, a massive famine breaks out in Bengal. It's not primarily the, com- the fault of the East India Company, but they don't do anything to alleviate it. So, three million people die. Uh, any normal ruler would have a stock of grain and granaries ready for emergencies. It's a regular thing in Indian history. Famines happen. Monsoons fail. So any sensible ruler has granaries around his realm, which he fills with grain on, on, on fat years and uh, is able to give out the grain in lean years. Uh, but the India Company not only has not done this, they've got no intention of even providing soup kitchens and buying in stuff to keep everyone alive. So a third of Bombay, a third, sorry, a third of Bengal dies in 1770, and eventually um, although the first year they managed to get full taxes gathered by force by sending out the troops to the villages and just extracting tax and ben at Bennett Point, whether the person's starving or not. Uh, by 1772, this has fallen flat because there is no money left. They have literally stripped the cupboard bare. And so the East India Company um, share price drops uh, cataclysmically in London and uh, the company proves... In this case, to be too big to fail, unlike Lehman Brothers. And the and the, the government goes in as it did with Nat West 10 years ago, and they buy 50% of the company. Now, in all the eruptions that take place uh, over the course of first the famine, then the revelation that the whole thing has collapsed, then all the investigations and the parliamentary um backwards and forwards that leads eventually to the 1784. Regulating Act. This means that the depredations of the East India Company have been in the news, in the Gentleman's Magazine, in the Spectator, and all the different uh, Georgian journals, all of which are being avidly read in Massachusetts. And there are rumors that the East India Company, to recoup its losses, will be allowed to trade in, uh, in North America. And the, and the patriots <laughs> come to believe or persuade themselves that they're going to see in North America what you saw in In Bengal, that the East India Company would be let loose to asset strip, to butcher, uh, and to uh, uh, impoverish and starve uh, the American colonies, and this, whether it's actually ever likely to have happened or not, becomes a major rallying cry. This becomes a big deal uh, uh, for the um, for the people of um, uh, Massachusetts, and so when you uh, that's all crucial background to the Boston Tea Party, which again you know, forgotten largely in. Uh, American uh, accounts of the Civil War, partly because it just never happened. Uh, And the only kind of bit of the water, uh, sorry, only bit of the iceberg in a sense which juts above the water, uh, linking us back to this crucial cause of the revolution is the Boston Tea Party and the fact that it was Boston Tea and the whole business of, of the tax and the tea and all that.
2: You can't um, tell a story of, of extreme wealth and plundering and imperialism in the 18th century without mentioning Napoleon, and um, unsurprisingly, he's got his eye on India as well when he comes into power. You know, towards the end of the 18th century, he most certainly does, and um, he is very envious of uh,
3: uh, English power in India uh, and believes it would be the easiest thing in the world to overthrow it. That uh, the, the East India Company is a bunch of merchants, he says, with a Uh, with a French uh, uh, disdain uh, written all over his face as he says it. And he realizes that there are many Indian rulers who he can do business with. So he writes to Tipu Sultan from Egypt when he arrives in Cairo, saying, I'm going to come down the Red Sea, Uh, I'm going to bring a whole load of um, uh, invasion craft, and I can land and we can join up together and we can drive the East India Company out of uh, India. And that, of course, is ended uh, when Nelson finds the French... Fleet and the Battle of Aboukir uh, or Abukir uh, Bay takes place and the French fleet is sunk and Napoleon eventually scuttles back to uh, to Europe, leaving his army stranded in Egypt. And in the end, it's a reverse invasion. It's the first time the East India Company troops are used by the British government out of India. Uh, because they then use East India Company troops to get uh, to defeat Napoleon's stragglers left in Alexandria and in Cairo. Uh, they land in Suez, they cross the desert, and they and they defeat them. So it is very much tied up with uh, Napoleon. And Napoleon, in the famous that lovely, um, uh, I don't know whether it's true, but the story certainly is. I've I've heard various people say that it's not true, but I would love it to be so. That in that famous meeting of the Tsar and Napoleon on the raft uh, at the at the Treaty of Tilsit, uh, when they meet between um, uh, I can't remember which Russian river this uh, this uh, Tilsit is on, is it the the Dnieper or whatever it is, uh, and they meet on a raft in the middle of the river. And apparently there is a British spy underneath the raft listening to the conversation. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and this is certainly told as fact by Peter Hopkirk uh, in The Great Game. Uh, uh, and I, I would love it to be true, though I know that s- several people have, have questioned it. But certainly some sort of intelligence emerges from uh, that meeting in Tilsit that the Russians and Napoleon agree to invade India together. And the Russians are going to come down from the Orenburg line, which is just north of sort of Bukhara. Uh, and charged through Afghanistan effortlessly while the French legions marched through Persia. Uh, and indeed, in the um, Indian National Archives, I've seen maps which were seized from um, French emissaries in Tehran, I think, um, showing uh, these plans to try and get permission, which they had been brought to Persia to try and get permission from the Shah to march French armies through Persia um so i mean napoleon was nothing if not sort of continentally ambitious Uh, and of course none of these things except the invasion of egypt ever actually happened um but uh, it's a lovely thought the idea of the the russians and the french meeting at the bottom of the khyber pass or whatever was planned
2: yeah well i mean i suppose what the, the, the 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 final lesson of this is just how how frightening it is if you've got a Financial institution that's militarized. I suppose, whether on land and sea. I mean, that's the real concern, isn't it?
3: Correct. I mean, the, the modern equivalent would be sort of Tesla, not with space rockets, but with nuclear rockets, or uh, Amazon with submarines uh, rather than delivery vans, or Facebook um, with um, fighter jets. Uh, and as soon as you see it in those terms, of course, it is um, it is very frightening. On the other hand, you could argue. Um, Anyone who's ever read Zuboff's book on on data harvesting, uh, that that none of these companies like Google or Facebook really need armies anymore because they're already in our homes listening to every word we say, that tomorrow on your social media uh, feed, if you've got your phone on while we're having this conversation, you'll suddenly find um, adverts for East India Company tea turning up on your Facebook or in your tweet uh, stream. Uh, and uh, and you could argue that these these massive corporations today uh, have learned from the East India Company and no longer need the weapons uh, and have, have got a more sophisticated and insidious means of infiltrating our homes and our lives. But what these companies have certainly learned from the East India Company is how to manipulate politicians. And one of the things the East India Company perfected at the beginning, 1690, the governor of the East India Company for the first time is hauled off into the Tower of London because he's been caught bribing MPs Uh, to vote for the extension of the East India Company monopoly. And this is important because this is the first time in history that a corporation has tried to bribe a parliament or a legislature. Uh, And subsequently, the East India Company uh, pulls back from outright bribery, but it has equally effective means of controlling parliament. Uh, Many East India Company uh, men on their return from India with fortunes by rotten boroughs and... Get elected to Parliament so much so that they have an interest that's almost equal to the size of the Whig Party, uh, and they can vote as a bloc for matters that concern the company. And then beyond that, well over 50% of MPs have East India Company shares, and so you know uh, we'll protect the East India Company's interests, whether those are the interests of the state or not. So you see for the first time that very modern. Confrontation From of the interests of, of the state against the interests of corporations—something which, which is very much with us today. When you know uh, all the all the company countries of G7 get together to try and work out how to control Amazon, for example, how do you tax them? You know, they pretend, pretend that they're, they're based in in some little island and in the Virgin Islands or whatever it is, some tax haven in Panama. Uh, and uh, and it's only now, really, that we're beginning to see. Um governments beginning to fight back against the power of the corporation. In the end, the East India Company was defeated by the power of the state. Uh, when they screw up so badly that you get the largest anti-colonial revolt in the world breaking out when the East India Company's own army revolts in what we call the Indian mutiny and what the Indians call the First War of Independence. But the um In other state situations today, who's to say? Is it going to be the state or the corporation which is more powerful? Tesla, you know, already has a turnover greater than most nations in the world. Um, The future of this is is one to watch. And that's what's been so exciting. I've been writing these company books for 20 years. The first one, White Moguls, came out around 2002. Um, The fourth book of the company quartet, The Anarchy, actually the first in time, but the, the, the fourth to be written, um, came out la- uh, last year, and, and suddenly, in, in the difference between those 20 years, uh, big corporations, which simply hadn't been an issue when I started writing, suddenly were the centre of everyone's anxieties, these ideas of data harvesting, and the power of these corporations and the c- corruption brought by these corporations and, and organisations like Facebook's ability to destroy democracy and so on. Uh, these have suddenly become big national, international issues. And so um, it's a very nice feeling that uh, when I completed this quartet First one is the anarchy. Second one is white moguls. Third is a return of a king about Afghanistan. These India to come in Afghanistan. Fourth is the last mogul. Very nice feeling at the end of it and in 2020 when it boxed up into a box set. Suddenly to feel that what had been really rather peripheral to everyone's interests in the 2000s, suddenly both canonism and big corporations were the sort of thing that everyone was talking about. Uh, and uh, um, hopefully these books will begin to um, provide some sort of uh, education to people that simply weren't taught any of the stuff at school because it isn't in our national curriculum
2: yeah well i tell you what history has never felt more relevant william thank you very much indeed for talking to me today
3: um, thank you great pleasure thank you for reading the book so carefully
2: Very many thanks indeed for listening today. Now, if you're listening on an iPhone, do please take the time to review us in the podcast app. It's very easy. Just scroll down to the bottom, hit the number of stars, hopefully five, and tell the world what you think. This is a hugely important thing to do to help spread the word about the podcast so we can do our job, which is to teach the world about the importance of the sea in our shared past. Please also take the time to check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page, which has some truly wonderful, innovative videos bringing the maritime world to life as never before. Please find us and follow us on social media. But above all, please join the Society for Nautical Research. It doesn't cost very much, but your contribution will support this podcast. It'll help publish the Mariner's Mirror quarterly journal and it will help preserve our maritime past. You can join and find out all about what we've been doing for more than a century at snr.org.uk.